Um, well, thank you, ladies. And um, if you didn't see the Facebook post, thank you for all of the tea, the dark chocolate, the cards, the encouragement, the flowers. Um, your dark chocolate and tea fueled this message. So if it sounds a little caffeinated, it's because I was drinking a lot of tea and eating chocolate um, late at night as I finished this. So thank you. All right. So think back to when you were a child. How did you want to fill your days when you grew up? Did you want to care for animals? Maybe care for children? Um, did you want to be a ballerina? Maybe even paint professionally? Well, for those of you that have excellent memories, a year ago I told you that when I was six years old, I wanted to be a marine biologist. And today you get to hear about my high school career aspiration. I wanted to be a lawyer. So I grew up on Nancy Drew novels, uh, Perry Mason reruns, and I was convinced that being a lawyer was the perfect job for me because you're a part-time sleuth and you're bagging evidence, you're solving crime, and then you're also a part-time defender of the truth. And as someone who has a deep passion for justice, enjoys advocating for others, and believes that good should always triumph no matter what, this was the perfect career for me. Well, my dreams came true sophomore year of high school when we read Lord of the Flies. And this was an opportunity to put one of the characters on trial. Now, in this mock trial, I was the lead prosecutor, naturally, um, and my high school boyfriend was my partner. And I thought this case was going to be a slam dunk. I mean, a boy is murdered. How much more guilty can you be? Roger's guilty. We're trying him. Easy peasy. Well, unfortunately, what I didn't account for was the fact that Brad um, was merely shooting for a passing grade, and I was there to righteously defend the truth. So I make my passionate appeal, I'm convincing, I'm convicting, I'm strong, we're going to win this. And then we come to closing arguments, and Brad gets up, and he speaks softly, and he smiles a lot, and he's not convicting or compelling at all. And I'm thinking, oh, we look weak. We're going to lose. And we did. A boy was murdered, and we lost. And seriously, I never forgave Brad for it. I mean, honestly. He called a few times after that, and I didn't pick up. I was done. We lost. And it sounds embarrassing and very self-righteous, but true story. I was so disappointed I didn't speak to him again. And the end of that relationship, um, yeah, it was interesting. Because besides learning that um, I should always stack my team with winners when I do things <laughs> like escape rooms or board games, um, and some of you might see that at Ladies Night, just a little hint um, about winning teams. Um, in all seriousness, I also learned that the truth can be manipulated. I learned that what is so clearly wrong can be made to look right, depending on who's telling the story and the emotional appeals that are being used. Um, I learned that, unfortunately, the truth doesn't always come to light. And even more sobering, that good does not always triumph. And it was a sobering day to see the truth mixed with lies. And I think it was a sobering day over 2,000 years ago when Paul received the report that his beloved Thessalonians were receiving truth with lies. And unfortunately, has much changed since then? I don't, I don't think so. In an era of fake news and anything goes on the internet, truth mixed with lies has become the standard. In fact, it's really hard to find any sort of 
perspective that is unbiased. But what hasn't changed, what isn't biased, is the good news of Jesus Christ. And amid so much uncertainty, so much that is unknown, we can know with clarity, with certainty, that we have the gospel truth. Paul said it first to the Thessalonians, and he says it to us today. The gospel is the truth that saves, so cling to it. Go ahead and turn with me, if you will, to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we are going to begin in verse 1. Paul writes, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly coming from us, whether by prophecy or by word, by, of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. And as Sissy taught us last week from chapter one, we as believers, we can persevere in the difficult times because we have a glorious future and we live with that end in mind. And for the Thessalonians, that promise that God was going to return and bring justice, that he was going to deliver them from suffering and redeem all things, that was the promise that they were clinging to. But then new information appears. These false teachers are saying, no, 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 you got it all wrong. Paul actually taught additionally after he left. This is what he says. The day of the Lord has already come. And as you can imagine, it prompted lots of anxiety and fear and worry because if we're living in the day of the Lord, is our persecution going to get worse? Has, if Jesus has already returned, why aren't things better? Where is the justice? Why are we still suffering? Where is this new life that we have been promised? Was it all a lie? What is my hope? And you can guess how quickly these lies, this confusion, this uncertainty spread out of control. And it caused the Thessalonians very real fear and very real worry. And like a good father who longs to comfort an anxious child, Paul writes words of clarity, of comfort, and of hope in chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians. And you may be thinking, uh, comfort, Tiffany, I'm not, I'm not really sure. I wouldn't say that, you know, a mysterious figure named the man of lawlessness, the restrainer. Um, I'm not sure that apostasy and rebellion, I'm not sure these things I would describe as comfort. But stick with me, because the end times, the study of the end times is a simple word called eschatology. Say with me, eschatology. Look at you, Bible scholars. And at its most basic, it takes this big, kind of scary, uncertain topic and brings it down to a very simple definition. Eschatology is about two things, hope and ethics. Hope is what sustains us in the here and the now. It's what keeps us going. And ethics shows us how to live in the day today while we wait for the coming of Christ. And that is exactly what Paul is doing here in chapter two. He's already taught the Thessalonians about Jesus, and now he's going to teach them what to expect in the future. That's the hope piece. And he's going to teach them how they are to respond. That's the ethics piece. Now, for some of you, talks about the end times might uh, prompt some eye-rolling. You might have images of televangelists with big timelines and their computers or their newspapers in hands, and they're trying to match current events to timelines. <clears throat> some of you 
uh, might have grown up on the Left Behind novels. And sometimes you see those bumper stickers that say, in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. Um, still others that live in fear, some in denial, and some have just plain general disinterest in this quirky, quacky, whateverness this is. You see, our relationship to end times is complicated because there is so much that is uncertain. There is so much that is unknown. And let's be honest, what is uncertain and unknown makes us uncomfortable. It stirs up something in us that we'd prefer not to deal with. And so we put it aside and just hope that things will work out. However, as Kelsey, the author of our study says, God isn't concerned with satisfying our burning curiosity or with filling in all the gaps in our knowledge. Instead, God has given us all the information that we need for understanding and for growing in holiness, all of it, sisters. There is not a piece that is out there lingering that if you turn over this rock and say these magical words, then you will have that secret key that God is waiting for you to find out. No, he has given us all that we need to grow in holiness. And so with that comforting reassurance, we can approach passages about the end times, passages that focus on eschatology with humility and with dependence upon God, knowing that we are students who are learning. We don't have to speculate. So let's dive in. Continuing in verse 3, Paul writes, Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for the day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. Yes, these, these are Paul's words of comfort, as surprising as they may be. Rebellion, destruction. I'm not going to say that to Emma Ruth. Um, I don't think she would find it comforting. But it is comforting to us because what Paul is saying is, Thessalonians, you have already received the truth. Do you remember the order of events I told you? Has the man of lawlessness come? No. Has the rebellion occurred? Nope then it's not the day of the Lord. Jesus hasn't returned yet. You haven't missed anything. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Um, don't be deceived. So while I personally have not had to potty train anyone, uh, my sister Tamara is currently potty training my niece Evelyn. And as I understand it, potty training can be frustrating and messy. And you are not on your own timeline. You're on the child's timeline. And so Evelyn has this little mini training potty, and in an attempt to motivate Evelyn to use the potty, um, the stuffed animal Minnie Mouse sometimes sits on the training potty and even successfully uses the potty. Uh, one day, Tamara was trying to outwit Evelyn, and so she dropped in some chocolate chips, which I thought was very clever. And she goes, Evelyn, come in here, come look. Minnie used the potty, would you like to try? And Evelyn kind of peeked in and opened the lid, and then she goes, Mommy, that's chocolate. You eat it. <laughs> I don't think so. I'm not eating chocolate out of a training potty. Um, I don't know anyone who wants to be deceived, not even a two-year-old, do you? Uh, now, at times, we may want to remain ignorant or not super aware, like when we've accidentally eaten a whole sleeve of Thin Mints and we don't want to look at the calorie count on the box. We may want to remain ignorant or unaware, but very few of us want to be intentionally deceived. And Paul didn't want the Thessalonians to be deceived and anxious either. He wanted them to be able to be, stand up confident in their faith 
and with that confidence, with that hope, to endure suffering and persecution. So to clear up any understanding, Paul reminds them of what he had already taught them about the end times. And since Paul had already taught them these things in detail, what we get here in chapter 2 is the Sparknotes version of it. We get a list of the main characters. We get a general statement about who they are and what they did. And then we get the general plot summary. Paul tells the Thessalonians just enough to jog their memory. And while it would be enticing for us to try to flesh out the full novel and guess or speculate how it all fits together, the truth is, sisters, we don't know. We are not the author of this novel. God is. And so let's trust what he has chosen to reveal to us. Amy and Kathy have passed out a handout to you. So go ahead and turn to the timeline part of the handout. And this is taken um, directly from page 122 of your study guide. And I'm just going to walk through this timeline briefly for you. First, I want you to notice that there are two unfamiliar characters in this passage. The first is the restrainer. And no, that is not a new Marvel character in the multiverse. You will not be um, having a summer blockbuster hit come out. But the restrainer is someone whose job is to limit or hold back the full force of evil currently at work in the world. Yes, evil is at work. It abounds. There is suffering. There is destruction. There is pain. It seems like everywhere we look. But apparently this is not as bad as it could be. Uh, scholars have suggested that the identity of the, holy, of the restrainer could be the Holy Spirit, perhaps the worldwide church, maybe even a well-ordered nation that has laws restricting the operation of evil. And so while we can't know what the restrainer's identity is, we do know that God is sovereign and that this restrainer is operating under and in accordance with God's plan. However, there will come a day when that restrainer is removed and evil operates at its full destructive force. And at that time, the man of lawlessness, the second character, is revealed. And we're told that this figure opposes everything and anything having to do with God, his good plan, his good um, designs for you, and his worship. In fact, this man of lawlessness is going to set himself up in God's temple and declare himself to be God, to be Yahweh. And by the power of Satan, the man of lawlessness will perform counterfeit signs and wonders, all designed to deceive and to destroy. Which brings us to the ultimate day of retribution. I'm sorry, I skipped a part. Because of the effectiveness of this deception, because he is so cunning and conniving, many people who once professed to belong to Jesus will deliberately turn away and deny him. And that is what's called the great rebellion or apostasy. It's the turning away from the truth. And then we get the ultimate day of retribution. Almost simultaneously, the man of lawlessness is destroyed by the breath of Jesus. And our King Jesus returns, as we see in verse 8. And sisters, I love in the message version how Eugene Peterson says it's with a puff, just a puff, that this evil figure is destroyed by God's breath. This is not a contest between good and evil because evil cannot stand before the perfect power, justice, might, and love of our King Jesus. As described in Revelation 20, there is coming a day when all evil, all sin, all pain, all suffering, every tear, and even death itself will once and for all be put away. At that time, King Jesus will make everything new. 
and we will dwell with him. And this, sisters, is where our hope lies, in Christ alone. That is our hope, but not everyone has that same hope. Look with me in verse 9. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He uses all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceive those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. And I don't know what your experience was with this lesson, but for me, when I read verse 10, it feels heavy and weighty, and there is a great sadness there. Because it is here that we confront the somber reality that people we know, maybe even people we love, will spend eternity apart from God because they refuse to love the truth of the gospel and be saved. And friends, the gospel is the truth that saves. The gospel is the only truth that saves because the, James, the claims of Jesus are exclusive. Jesus is not one way. All good people will not be saved. Those who are obedient will not earn the right to be saved. And those who have good not works will not stay saved. The gospel is the truth that saves. And the gospel is all about Jesus and what he has done on your behalf. For example, when a disciple asked Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. When asked to reveal his identity, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you hold to my teaching, then you really are my disciples. They will, uh, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And when being questioned by Pilate, Jesus answered, The reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. Jesus is the good news. Jesus is the truth of the gospel that we receive with open arms, that we welcome. However, not everyone likes the gifts that they have been given. Uh, one Christmas as a teenager, Jason opened a thoughtfully wrapped package of batteries and ear and nose hair trimmers. Um, now, in all fairness, the Steinmen are quite hairy, and everyone got the same gift. I think his grandmother found a, like, buy one, get three free deal at Walmart. Um, but needless to say, this is not a gift Jason was excited about or one that got used. Um, and similarly, the truth of the gospel is one that not everyone is excited about receiving. As scholar Beverly Gaventa wrote in the study, they rebel because they are deluded into believing that they have no need of God or that they already know God's mind. In other words, the gospel is only good news if you believe that you are dead in your sins and in need of a savior. If you think you're fine, if you think you have flourishing life, then you have no need for the truth that leads you to salvation and to new life. And that is the case of those who will spend eternity apart from God. Look again at verse 11. For this reason. For what reason? Because those who are perishing didn't love the truth 
and they rejected the gift of salvation. For that reason, God then sends them a delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. Now, some of you may be thinking, wait, Mm, that doesn't sound right. How can a good God send a powerful delusion and then condemn the people for believing the delusion that he sent? That doesn't sound correct. And you'd be right because God is good and his plans and purposes are perfect. An author I respect wrote, never believe anything bad about God. Never believe anything bad about God. In other words, if you find yourself tempted to believe something that is contradictory to God's word or to his character that is loving and just, you've probably misunderstood something. Never believe anything bad about God. So let's go back and look at this verse again. Remember, God is not the author of evil. He doesn't delight in evil. And let me be clear, he doesn't cause people to follow the delusions or to believe the lie. God desires that all would be saved. What is actually happening in verse 10 is that the people perishing have proven themselves to be closed off to righteousness. They want none of it. They have proved themselves to be open to sin. And so instead of being formed by Jesus continually and repeatedly over and over and over, they have been formed by evil. And so God eventually gives them the very thing that they wanted, that very sin and error that they embraced which Sissy taught us, God gives them over to. Uh, Scholar Gaventus says that verses 11 through 12 could be paraphrased as this. Because they preferred delusion to the truth, God handed them over to every sort of delusion so that their condemnation might be complete. So in the end, those who spend eternity apart from God are those who wanted that. They wanted to be apart from God. And so you see, the view of your end times shapes what you hope for today and how you live. The truth matters. And just like the Thessalonians, we live between Jesus' two comings. We have received the good news of the gospel. We eagerly look forward to the return of Jesus. And in the meantime, in this in-between time, in our day-to-day living, we cling to the truth. Sisters, because the gospel is the truth that saves, we cling to it. Paul writes in verse 16, Brothers and sisters, stand firm. Hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. And stand firm is one of Paul's favorite expressions for remaining faithful to the gospel. It appears in over three letters multiple times. And to stand firm is to be so deeply rooted that no matter what may come, you remain unshaken. If you think about those giant oak trees, they have huge crowns, but even deeper root systems. And when a storm comes, they may lose a branch or two, acorns may fall, the tree may even be struck by lightning, but it very rarely topples because it has a firm foundation keeping it grounded. It stands firm, it stands tall. And to hold fast to the teaching is to place the truth of the gospel at the forefront of your minds and allow it to shape you. When you get distracted, you come back to the truth. When you doubt God's presence, you come back to the truth. When you get worried or anxious, you come back to the truth. You cling to the truth like spanks under your dress, like a mosquito in Texas sucking your blood, 
or like that annoying residue that you can't scratch off when you've peeled off a sticker. You <laughs> cling to the truth. And you're welcome for the word pictures. I don't think you'll forget that. So how do we practically stand firm and cling to the truth? Well, I have three simple suggestions for you. And the first is this. Know God and know his word. There was a lot of scripture checking and pronoun replacing in this lesson. Am I right? It may not have been your most favorite one, but by doing that, by engaging and studying the Bible and doing Bible study lessons and committing to doing that hard work around your table, you are building a firm foundation for your faith. By engaging in Sunday worship services, you are receiving biblical teaching and you are rehearsing the story of the Bible. In so doing, God's word and God himself are becoming known to you. Second, be in a small group or be in intentional relationships with Christians who will hold you accountable to core doctrinal truths. And if you're having trouble recalling what are the fundamentals of the Christian faith, we did a study on Rooted, the core doctrines of the faith, a few years ago. Pull that out. If you're not familiar with the Nicene or the Apostles' Creed, Google that on your phones. These are very simple statements of what Christians everywhere ought to believe. And third, vet your teachers. Vet your teachers. In today's media-saturated world, everything from dieting tips to wealth management podcasts are marketed as Christian living. It's become a catch-all for so many things. And friends, quite honestly, just because it's marketed as Christian living doesn't mean it's helpful. It may not even be Christian, and it especially may not be true. So to be on guard against truth mixed with lies, here's a few questions to ask yourself. Go ahead and flip over your handout, and you'll see those there. Ask yourself, what is this teacher's motive? Do they stand to gain power, influence, money, or fame by advancing this teaching? Yes, the worker deserves her pay. However, if their primary motive is one of these things, that's something to question. Does this teacher exhibit the fruit of the Spirit? Is he humble? Does he live a life of integrity? Does he genuinely care for the well-being of those following him? Does his lifestyle match what he preaches? Third, is this teaching in line with the rest of Scripture? God does not contradict himself, and his word does not contradict himself. If someone is teaching something that is in direct contradiction to the Bible, that is a lie. Four, does what they're teaching side with the history of Christian interpretation? I'm going to be honest. You are exceptional and beautiful women created in the image of God. But if you have had a new thought that someone in 2,000 years has never had about the Bible, it's probably not true. And that's the same with those who are teaching things of the Bible. If someone has a brand new interpretation that no scholar has ever thought of in 2,000 years, there's a 99% chance that it is incorrect. Question that. And then fifth, does this teaching lead to flourishing in Christ? Will this teaching lead to greater freedom in Christ and to producing the fruits of the Holy Spirit? Or does it lead to legalism, to bondage, to fear, to uncertainty? What are the fruits of this teaching? Let's commit to being women who are wise and discerning, especially when it comes to who we're listening to, who we're following, who we're scrolling past, and who we're liking. 
because everyone is teaching something. The question is, is what they're teaching true? So to recap, as believers, we can stand firm and cling to the truth by knowing God and his word, by being an intentional Christian community where we are held accountable to core doctrinal truths, and by vetting our teachers. Since the gospel is the truth, let's cling to it. And now I'd like to speak to those of you who are not believers. Thank you for being here. Thank you for doing the hard work of leaning in and asking questions about Jesus. And if I had to guess, misinformation about who Jesus is or what he asks of you or what he invites you into may be the very reason that you're not interested in this Jesus. So can I share the truth of the gospel with you very plainly and very simply? You are created in the image of God and you are so dearly loved. However, you are dead in your sins, and the sin separates you from God, and there is nothing in your own power that you could do to reconcile yourself to the Father. The good news is that Jesus brings abundant life. By placing your trust in him, you experience life with God both now and forevermore. And God is bigger, better, more holy, more powerful, more loving, and more just than you could ever hope or imagine. And one day, King Jesus is returning to make all sad things come untrue and to make all things new, and it will be a glorious day. Friends, this is the good news that points us to salvation in Jesus. So whether you're exploring faith in Jesus or you have been walking with Jesus for 40 years, Paul's invitation to you is the very same. The gospel is the truth that saves. Will you cling to it? Paul closes this chapter with the prayer of gospel hope in verses 16 through 17. And I'd like to pray that prayer over each of you, dear sisters, so will you bow your heads? May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope. Encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good word and deed. Amen.